Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Good morning. My name is Rob Heron, and I'm the assistant pastor here at Redeemer, and I want to welcome you. What is Redeemer? Redeemer is a church, which means that we are a community of people that are trying to learn how to love God and trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He is the Messiah. He's come into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so as his people, we gather in worship to rest in the love that he has displayed to us in Christ. And as we gather together to rest in that love, we delight to gather together around tables and in homes so that we might remind one another of that great love. And as we rest in that love and as we remind one another of that love, we delight then to gather in service so that we might reflect the love of God to our families, to our friends, and to our neighbors here in Urban and University Knoxville with the hope, the solid hope, that in some way that love would spill out into the entire earth. So that's who we are. We're a community of people trying to learn how to love God and trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, remind, and reflect God's love. We're in our second week in a new sermon series that we have entitled Questions God Asks. Imagine all of us have some arsenal of questions that we have for God. And asking those questions to God is part of knowing him. But if we want to know God, we also must face the questions he asks us, the questions that God asks. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the first question that God asks in the Bible in Genesis 3, where are you? And you can find this passage printed in your Bible, which is in in one of your rows in front of you. Um, You can also find it printed in your bulletin. You can look on your smartphone and follow along in any way you would like to. This is Genesis 3, 1 through 10, and 20 and 21. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me for the teaching? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do thank you that you are not hidden. You are the God who seeks. And so would you now, through your word, by your spirit, would you seek us so that we would be found in Jesus. And in his name we ask, amen. And it's stand-up special lobby baby, the comedian Seth Meyers, he, he talks about this dynamic of looking in the refrigerator for things that he has no idea where to find. But to his wife, they're completely obvious. Helpless to find them on his own, his wife says, they are there. They are right there in the refrigerator. And he, he does this creative thing in the special where he takes on his wife's perspective, speaking as though he is her, for her to be able to reflect on the silliness of what's going on in this moment. And so he says, as her, sometimes my husband will open the refrigerator and say, we're out of yogurt. And I will say, we are not out of yogurt. And he will say, I'm telling you, there is no yogurt in this refrigerator. And I will say, please don't make me come over there and find a yogurt. And he will say, on our child's lives, there is no yogurt in this refrigerator. And then I will walk over to the refrigerator and it will take me this long to find the yogurt. This is my husband if he was Apollo 13. Houston, we have a problem. There is no moon. And then I would say, have you looked out both windows? And then there'd be a pause. And he'd say, Houston, we're good to go. But still speaking as his wife, he does admit, as her, that one out of every tenth time, there is no yogurt, none at all. And she insists to him, keep looking, seek and you will find. But she just enjoys the helpless look on his face as he cluelessly looks into the fridge as the blue light illuminates his face. Being told again and again, seek and you will find. And there's nothing there, because it's a joke. The claim Christianity makes that God is not hidden, that he's made himself known, he's there, it can feel to us like a form of deception, and not just a joke, but some kind of cruel joke. In many ways, the Bible itself, it tells us that if we seek God, we will find him. He is there. He's not hidden. So the prophet Jeremiah says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, says the Lord. But I imagine for most of us, our internal response to that is something like, I have sought you. I've looked for you. I've looked on every shelf. I've looked on every corner. And you're not there. If you're there, make it plain. And it's, it's not the kind of question that's just abstract. It's more often than not the kind of question we ask when we are in physical pain or grief, experiencing fear. God, where are you? Where are you? What I want us to see this morning is that the God who is there, who is not hidden, he doesn't dismiss our question, but to our surprise, he addresses it in part. One of the ways he addresses it is by turning it to us, returning the question. And so here is the question God confronts us with this morning. Where are you? 
Where are you? And what I want to do this morning is investigate that question, or really let that question investigate us by looking at two things. First, the ones who hide, and second, the God who seeks. So the ones who hide, and second, the God who seeks. So first, let's look at the ones who hide as we consider this question, where are you? The context for the question God asks is this. God invites us on a walk. The first chapters of the Bible are a history and a window into the meaning of everything. And when we look through that window, what we find is not randomness or meaninglessness, but order and beauty. God creates the world. He crafts it. He speaks it into existence, and it's all very good. He makes it as an arena for his beauty, and he plants a garden in the middle of it. And to Adam and Eve, he provides for every one of their needs. The first people, he gives this vocation to represent him as rulers in his good and kind world. And at the heart of all this goodness is God's presence. He crafts them in his image so that they would know him, bearing his likeness so that they would have communion with him. They'd be near to him, close to him, have intimate and true relationship with him so that most of all, they would have him and have life with it. And in the world God made, in the garden he planted, he would go on a walk in the cool of the day. And the sound of him walking wasn't a threatening or a frightening sound. It was an inviting sound. It was an invitation to go and walk with him. And to understand what happens next, we really do have to get this first point, this good part. We have to understand that there was no reason for anything to go wrong. There was no crack in the foundation. The people God made, they had everything, and more than anything, they had him. And so what happens next is a terrible shock. A serpent speaks to Eve to persuade her and Adam to self-destruct. And that's shocking not just because snakes don't typically speak, but because suddenly, when we were made to be rulers over God's good order, a creature is persuading them to turn away from the God who gave them everything. This malicious and malevolent lie has slithered into paradise, and we listened to it. We listened to it. And the first question asked in the Bible comes from this snake being operated by some malevolent power who asks in verse 1, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So it's a question not asked with a gentle curiosity, but this desire to twist and to distort and make God's commands, his voice, insidious and selfish. And Eve, she talks back to the serpent, but she may already be following his lead and Adam with her, starting in verse 2. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So God provided everything they needed, and he set these parameters, these moral parameters, for them to operate within so that they might flourish. And still Satan twists, the serpent twists God's words with a forked tongue in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What God knows, the serpent hisses, is you don't need his presence. You don't need what he gives. You don't need him. If you want what you desire, if you want to be wise, turn from him. 
Go far from him, and the further the better. And without any reason to do so, Adam and Eve listened to that voice. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. They turned away, and they went far from God, and everything fell apart. And then they hid. God goes on a walk in the cool of the day, and now the most shocking and terrible and unthinkable thing happens in verse 8. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. I mean, this is unthinkable because it's absurd. They can't hide from the God who made heaven and earth, who made the trees. This is like a child playing hide-and-seek who thinks that he's hidden because he's covered his own eyes. It doesn't work that way. But it's also absurd because this is the God who created them in his image for communion with himself. He's provided for them. He's dignified them. He's loved them with perfection. And now hearing his sound, they duck and cover. And so here comes the question in verse 9. You can see, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? What kind of question is this? It's not a question asked from ignorance, because God made the trees that they're hiding within. And so why would he ask it? He must be asking it for their sake. He must be asking it to draw them out from the thicket, to draw them out of hiding. And why? And everything hinges on this. The way we hear this question is all about whether we offer our trust or mistrust to the God who asks it. Is God asking the question with hatred in his voice? Where are you, you pathetic traitors, when I get my hands on you? And that's what it sounds like to Adam and Eve. That's probably what it might sound like to us on first glance. And so Adam says in verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. But they hear the threat and the question, not because God hates them, not because he's done with them and, and writing them off forever. It's because that they are lost that they hear his voice as a cruel threat. It's because we hide that we dodge the question. And it makes all the difference we know in any relationship, whether there is trust or mistrust, on how we would interpret a question. If someone asks you, what are you up to today? That may be asked by a friend who's genuinely curious about what I'm going to do today. But if it's asked by an employer who I suspect is unhappy with me, then I'm going to hear it as some kind of threat. The assumption underneath it is you're not really working that hard. If someone asks you, why do you think that about something that you think? They may be genuinely curious about knowing what's in your mind and what's in your heart and how you think differently. But if there's broken trust, that underneath that question, you will hear the assumption, you're not that smart. You'll hear ridicule. Interpretation depends on perspective and it depends on trust. And that is true not only when it comes to the questions that God asks, it, it's true when it comes to our interpretation of anything God does. In Luke 15, Jesus tells this story of a woman who has lost a coin that she treasures, and she tears her house apart to find that one coin. And Jesus says, that's what God is like in seeking after us. But as one commentator points out, reflecting on this picture, what would the coin make of that situation? 
Let's say the coin is lodged in a, a sofa cushion underneath it in your house. It's warm, it's cozy, it likes its life in the couch. And then all of a sudden, its entire universe is being torn apart. It's an intrusion on its comfort. Maybe the, co the coin doesn't want to be found. Maybe the coin would like to stay hidden. And here's the point, that's us. The story of Adam and Eve, it's not just some explanation for how things got the way they are. It's our story. It's our history. You could really sum up the entire history of humanity as this. We have turned from God and then we hide. We turn and we hide. And because we turn and we hide ourselves, we hear God's voice as a threat and we, we interpret his seeking as an intrusion on our fabricated existence without him. This is our story apart from God. We don't want to be found and we don't want this question. Where are you? But God's question, it draws us out to face him and to face reality. We turn away and then we try to hide. Martin Luther wrote that this is the very nature of sin. The farther a man departs from God, the farther he wants to depart. And the more God calls out his question, where are you? The more we interpret it as an intrusion, as a threat. Because trust is broken, the more he seeks, the more we interpret it as harm. And so we run away even more. And we can do this all the while thinking that we're really the one seeking. God is truly the one hiding. We may be perfectly willing to engage in some kind of intellectual discussion about how God can be good when there's so much wrong with the world. And we think, I showed up to the debate and God skipped out. That's what it looks like. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones, the preacher, puts it, God is not talking to us about our opinions. He's not a bit interested in them, in themselves. He's interested in us. His question is aimed at us, at me, at you, where are you? And because it's the most personal of questions, it invites us without reserve to deal not with some abstraction, but with God himself. And if we deal with it, if we let it do, it do its work within us, then that question pierces us. If we receive it, it unveils the uncomfortable truth. God is not the one hiding. I am. God is not the one hiding. We are. God is not the one hiding. You are. He offers us himself. He offers us life, communion with him. But we turn away because we don't want him. We don't want his presence. We don't want relationship with him. We, don't, we want our heart's desire apart from him. And there is some desire deep within that wishes he would just die off already. And so... We run as far as we can run. And because that ugly desire is in my heart, I hide because I don't believe God wants me. I mean, why would he? If he sees not only my apathy toward him, but even my disdain toward him, why would he want me? And so where are you sounds like a threat. And hearing that threat, I turn away. And turning away, I hide all the more. I hide in my rebellion. I hide in my distractions. I hide in my self-righteousness. I hide in my shame. And hiding still more, I turn still more until I can't hear his voice at all. And when I hear it, I suppress it. 
God asks this question to us, where are you? Because we are the ones who hide. That's the first thing. We are the ones who hide. But second, let's look at the God who seeks. I don't think it's ever stating to say that the hope of Christianity, it really is packed into this first question God asks after everything went wrong. Where are you? It's not a threat. It's not fueled by rage. Instead, it's asked by the same God who made the world in love. It's asked in grief, and yet it's asked in love. I mean, because he knows where Adam and Eve are already, he could see them. It's a useless question, unless it's asked by a God with an incredible compassion for people who are lost. The preacher Charles Surgeon pointed out that if this question were meant to have destroyed the human race, God would have hurled his thunderbolt at once and burned the trees and let the ashes of the sinner lie beneath his angry gaze. He would have rushed in the whirlwind and in the storm and tearing up the cedars and the pomegranates by their roots. He would have said, here thou art, thou rebel, traitor, take thy due deserts. But instead, God asks, where are you? Which proves that God values them. Because who asks after things that they don't care about? No, God asks this question because he is the one who seeks. God asks this question because he is already and immediately, at the moment they turn, the moment they hide, seeking after them. He doesn't boot them to the curb, bare and ashamed. And instead in verse 21, we see, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. He clothes them with this ongoing witness to the innocence they've lost. But that, he does that with kindness. He clothes them with this witness to his promise to go with them as they depart, to seek them, and ultimately to clothe them with his mercy. So the question, where are you? It isn't the end of the relationship. It reveals what's happening at the moment Adam and Eve turn away and hide. God seeks, he seeks the ones who are lost. And even that word lost, it is so easily, like the question itself, misinterpreted as a term of disregard. Lost, forgotten, unworthy, kicked to the side. But it's just the opposite. The Bible calls us lost because like the woman in Jesus' story, God treasures us. And he won't stop until he finds us. He won't stop until he finds the lost. And only there's barely a comparison between this, this woman in the story and the God who shows otherworldly love in seeking us out. When those he made for perfect communion with himself go far away from home, he seeks. When they introduce murder into his world, they, he seeks. When they worship every single God but the one who is there for them, he seeks. When they end up in exile and in misery, he seeks them. He seeks and he seeks and he seeks and he calls out all the while, where are you? Because the immeasurable value he places upon his people. There is no exhausting that value. There's no frustrating his purpose to bring his lost loved ones back home. And so Sally Lloyd-Jones, who wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible outside of the Bible, puts it best. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's it. Steve Carell in the movie Beautiful Boy, he plays David Sheff, whose son is an addict who, who just 
disappears from home and goes further and further into self-destruction. And throughout this process of enduring, watching his son go further and further into harm, David tells his son, do you know how much I love you? If you could take all the words individually in the English language, it still wouldn't describe how much I love you. And if you could gather all those words together, it still wouldn't describe what I feel for you. And so David seeks his lost son. When I was a few years old, I ran away from home. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a plan, but the opportunity presented itself. And one day when my parents' backs were turned just enough, I slipped through the backyard and out into the wild, wonderful world of the neighborhood. And I wasn't that delightful of a kid, but my mom still chased after me. For the 10 minutes that I was missing, she ran up and down the street, screaming my name, going door to door. She called the police. And for that Those 10 minutes that as a parent now, I can only imagine seemed like 10 hours, 10 years. She sought me, screaming. And when she finally found me far down the street near a major highway or a major road, she saw me in the backyard of a neighbor playing with the dog that I did not know. And seeing me, she screamed my name so loud that I turned to her and apparently that was the first moment that I began to cry the intensity, the fierceness of the response. What could be more intense, more fierce than the love of a parent missing her child? And yet, that's just a pale reflection, just a small glimpse into the kindness and love and reckless intensity, the fierceness of God's love packed into this question, where are you? God seeks us relentlessly, fiercely. And so the question relentlessly is asked because it is relentlessly going out, seeking us to bring us home. And how? This question, it seeks us to subdue us. I mean, we've ingested the lie that that we don't need God. And the further away we get from God, the more free we will be. The closer we get to God, the more constrained and controlled we will be. And yet the question comes, where are you? Because God is out to subdue us by his love. He's the one who made us and gave us life. Outside of him, there is in the end only spiritual death. But the closer we get to him, the closer we are bound to him, the more liberated we will be. The closer and more subdued we are to his heart, the more we will be ourselves. The question seeks to subdue us so that we might know his love. And the question seeks us to renew us, to renew us in trust. Because we've ingested the lie also that we've gone too far. That if God really broke through, if he broke through the thicket, if we were uncovered, he would destroy us. And so the only only thing to do is to hide and to cover up. And yet the question comes, where are you? Because God is out to renew us in trust so that we would know that the closer we come to him, the more that we will come to trust him because he proves himself. He is faithful even if we are faithless because he cannot deny himself. And so he seeks to renew our hearts by bringing us back home to himself so that he might show us that he is the God who loves us. And really in the end, this question is drawing us out, yes. It's intruding, yes, so that we would be found and so that we would be brought home. And so where are you? Where are you? 
How have you turned away? Where are you seeking life apart from him? He calls you back to himself, subduing you with his love so that you be free. Where are you? Where are you hiding from God? What are you hiding from God? What are you hiding behind so that you might not have to deal with him? What lies, what distractions, what performance? God seeks to renew our trust so that we would find that there is nowhere that he cannot seek us. There is no too far. It doesn't exist. And again and again, God asks this question, where are you? Because he will not stop until he brings you fully and finally to himself so that we might see him face to face in the face of Jesus. And so this question is not just for those who are far off. This question is for those who have been brought near by grace. He will ask it. He won't stop seeking until he brings us fully and finally into communion with himself in union with Jesus. And so in the end, this question directs our focus not to ourselves, because after all, where am I? I am all over the place. With this breath, I move toward God, and with the next breath, I'm running far away again. But this question draws us not toward morbid introspection, but to see Jesus. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. We are sheep that have strayed, but Jesus came as the good shepherd who goes to the far country. He knows those far places. He knows what we have done in the far places, and he seeks us out. He even goes to the farthest place of death and destruction so that we might be brought home in him, bound to the Father in him. Because this was the plan all along. It was the plan the moment we turned away. And even in the depths of eternity, this was the plan. He meant us to bring us back home in Jesus. And that brings us to this table. At this table, we are not those who seek. We are those who have been found by the God who seeks. And so when we come to this table, God is bringing us to himself so that he might feed us with himself, so we might commune with him. Where are you? Wherever you are, come. Because where is God? He is here, offering himself to you. So come and be found.